What up, guys and girls? It's Bobby. Sean. Coming to you separated still. I'm back in Jersey. Sean's back in the big old, big old apple. The big apple. Uh, coming, the Windy City. Coming at you live for another episode of the Cronus Cast. This episode, like all episodes, is brought to you by Paragon Recovery. Use the code Cronus for 15% off. Um, highly recommend to use their sleep uh, supplement, their uh, night gain supplement. And their Flame Off anti-inflammatory supplement. Those are both cornerstones of my supp- daily supplementation, uh, and highly recommended. So, again, use code Cronus for fifteen percent off uh, for any purchases that you might make. And if you're military or first responder, hit them up for an additional discount code. Well, Bobby, how was your week? It's been good, man. Um, I was pretty deathly ill last weekend. So it's been nice uh, recovering from that. I still have like a bit of residual cough, but um, pretty much back to normal in terms of working out. Uh, it does kind of suck working out because I like uh, like lose a lung essentially when I uh, am done working out. But slowly getting better. <coughs> well, there we go. And you're sick, and you're working out. Can you confirm for us whether or not it was the coronavirus? So funny that you ask that. My dad did get back from China about two that week last week, last Tuesday. My dad got back from China, uh, but I have not seen him since he got back from China yet. So I can say it's pretty accurate, pretty safely that it's not the coronavirus. Oh, it's pretty funny. Damn. My uh, my mom, my mom was also got got like sick the week before my dad came home, so she was like home all for a week before he got home. And then they like self quarantine the house, <laughs> so like kind of like they like quarantine themselves for two weeks or quarantine my dad at least for two weeks. Holy shit, dude! That's what it. Can you explain what the coronavirus is? Yeah, sure. So for the coronavirus, it is um, a novel virus. So the coronavirus is actually a similar virus to like SARS. If you remember SARS or MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and severe acute respiratory syndrome for SARS. And these are viruses that, um, so coronaviruses, generally speaking, come uh, are more commonly found in animals, and in fact, animals more commonly than humans. However, like viruses are, are very well known for the fact that viruses are, have a very high mutation, or have the ability to mutate their genetic code, and are able to gain and lose like functions or specific like, um, infectability or ability to infect other organisms so with the coronavirus specifically this one the wuhan and cov 2019 or whatever they're the term they the name whatever they named it this virus somehow got the ability to infect humans um they posit or they believe that it was started in this livestock market so that uh, you know a bunch of like different animals in very close proximity so, like, um, basically the virus was probably infected, like, an animal infected a different animal that had different virus. And then these two viruses, like, combined genetic genes and, like, genetic material and then be, were able to then infect humans. So, this is, like, a new virus that no one's ever seen before because it's had that um, genetic, like, recompatibility or reformation that makes it a new virus that makes it able to infect humans. So when it comes to the coronavirus, um, I think a lot of the mortality that people are seeing from the coronavirus comes from, you know, people that are already sick, um, people with like, uh, that are older, that already have like respiratory issues, you know, that are 
like have other medical issues like diabetes, high blood pressure, things that like make them more already more susceptible to getting sick. So I suspect that um, with this virus, it is a little bit more uh, as a higher mortality rate compared with the flu. But the flu itself, especially in America, is particularly deadly this year. I think that the flu, typically the flu kills about like 6,000 people a year in America. Um, but it is a much lower mortality rate than the coronavirus also. Well, so not to say like the you should be worried about the coronavirus. You should, you should definitely uh, be worried more so about the flu because the flu has a higher chance of killing you than the coronavirus in America, at least. Damn. Well, I was just looking up uh, some of the stuff like on the common flu. Like I had no idea that that many people were uh, were infected or, or killed every year. But they're saying like deaths range from 12,000 to 61,000 worldwide and mm-hmm. account for... I'm going to round up substantially here, but almost a million hospitalizations. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, the flu is, like, very deadly. People don't really, like, uh, take that into account every year. Wow. And this is also why, you know, the flu shots are very, very, very important to get every year. The, I mean, there's, like, plus or minus, like, the data on the flu shot is probably, like, not great because what they do with the flu shot every year is that epidemiologists at the CDC, they, like, sit down and, like, predict or try to predict slash or model like the next year's flu virus like which one they think is the predominant strain and then try to inoculate against that uh so it's all all based on like models and like epidemiological and pretty much the best guess on like what the flus that look like for the next year so i know that this year's flu shot is not very effective it's like 30 only like 30 percent protective against the flu like the, the strains this year so like it's not a very good flu shot for this year but it's still better than nothing and that um, while you speaking like the collective you as in like the list royal we are probably not. Yeah. The royal the royal you are probably not going to like work. You shouldn't really necessarily worry about the flu because we're all pretty healthy individuals. Um, they, you know, have like robust immune systems. But the flu shot is very, uh, very important for people that you might come in contact with that might not be able to fight off the flu. Like people who are old, like or people who are sick already with like diabetes or people who just like just not very um, have great immune systems already, so that you know they're more susceptible to the flu. So what you what you what the flu shot essentially does is you know decreases the overall incidence of flu in like the population, and hopefully to decrease the amount of people that you know are more susceptible to the flu, getting the flu and dying from the flu. But the flu is like a huge deal. Like I, I think people you know get caught up in the whole media thing about the the coronavirus, the Wuhan coronavirus, but. You know, the flu is a much more realistic uh, and more scary um, disease process than people think. I think one of the reasons for that, too, is kind of this, it's like uh, this far off land type disease, like when when SARS came Mm -hmm. out. And Mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. now they've said that this coronavirus is already more deadly than SARS. They've got like 700 confirmed deaths uh, the doctor yeah. who found it is is dead but china seems to be doing everything it can to to contain it i mean i think they said outside of wuhan the the most densely populated area where it's broken out the most is still on that uh passenger ship that cruise ship where they have you know mm-hmm. like a very high rate but that one hospital went up in 10 days uh, yeah that they built i mean so they're putting a lot of effort into containing this too, but I think a lot of people are using it, especially with trade deals coming up uh, politically as a, hey, like, 
this country's not doing so hot. Like, I don't know if we could trust them. And, and so I think, I think more so the flu virus is being painted with this coronavirus in a like geopolitical uh, picture rather than just like a health and humanitarian crisis. Oh yeah, like the the economic effects of the Wuhan virus are are like going to be widespread. I think I saw that like the uh, Chinese, um, like the forecast, like the stock market, the Chinese stock market dropped like ten points after like last week because of the Wuhan virus. And then I see I was reading about how like other companies are going to start seeing like like huge impacts to their like uh, bottom line. I think it was like uh, the one I saw was like you know uh, like Boeing or like Apple's and like lose like one percent of like just one percent of sale like total sales or whatever just because of that. So it's like there's a it's gonna have a huge economic impact uh, across the globe, not just not just from like the deaths, but just more so from the quarantine and the fact that people can't work in China because they're in quarantine. You know, like everything shut down in China. Like I don't think anyone in America has ever experienced like a quarantine uh from like an epidemic quarantine where like you can't do anything you can't work you can't leave the house so that's like well i mean we have I the purge the, once a year so that's i guess that's our quarantine depending on how you celebrate it yeah yeah, yeah. but so that's like the bigger i think the larger effect is the fact that you know economically like china's you know China factories aren't working. People aren't working the factories. Like, and China produces, you know, like everything in the world. So, I think there's gonna have like some bigger effects down the line uh, when it comes to the this virus and the quarantines. It's too bad we don't have Dan here. He'd be our money guy. He can, he can tell us exactly what the markets are looking like. Yeah, I, I know. Like the 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 Wall Street, like the Dow Jones dropped like ten five points last week or something like that because of the Wuhan. But, you know, the American economy is very uh, linked, very closely linked with uh, Chinese. Oh, yeah. I mean, we everything you buy from any store usually says made in China because it's, it's cost effective to, to do that even with shipping costs. Mm-hmm. But we talked about the purge. Real quick, how would you purge if you had to purge? Would you, would you purge or would you abstain and and sit inside and you know beef up your security i probably stay inside and beef up security wink if it was me personally how would you how would you secure your home that's a good question my home is current home is kind of a piece of shit so i don't know what i would do yeah i mean you, I you have know. a you have a I'd pretty big open the, like, window so you're kind of exposed yeah. on the first floor there yeah like, my door is not exactly, like, the, not, I'll be, like, from a security standpoint, my door is a piece of shit, too. Like, you could probably, like, sh- like, shoulder open my door really easily, like, breaking really easily. And then, what, we've got, you've got, like, a, an old Carl G sitting in your back room uh, for your, mm-hmm. your close quarters so work. Like, I saw it off. I don't know what a New York City would be weird for a purge situation. Like I'm on the sixth floor of my apartment. Yeah, you just like stay in your apartment, and that's like enough, like protection because you're like already higher up, and you have like multiple door doorways already leading to your place. Yeah, and you got to go through like a narrow hallway just to get into my living room, and then my living room is really narrow, so 
That would be a goddamn sniper's delight. Yeah. But, you know, that's neither here nor there because the purge doesn't really happen. For all of our foreign listeners, uh, Bobby's just scaling it down. The purge happens. It's an American tradition. Uh, They've made several films about it. So I would say it's pretty realistic uh, a depiction of what we go through almost. It's actually on July 3rd. It's the day before Independence Day where we really celebrate. Mm. Yeah, so we use the uh, the fireworks to cover up the gunshots. Yeah, what day do you think they would have, you know, going back from my previous comment, what day would be a good purge day in the United States? Uh, I actually think July 4th is probably, I think like you're saying July 4th is probably a good, pretty good day to do it. You know, it's like kind of summertime. Warm. Okay. The weather's good. Yeah. I mean, and in Alaska, then too, I think around that time, isn't that when they have like 24 hour days? Yeah. Like the super, super summer. So we've got longer days. It's warmer out. So that would get maximum participation from the standpoint of, uh, of a country trying to manage the population. Uh, you might be dealing with some humidity effects. So that might you know, decrease maybe the potential of individuals staying out too long because they get really sweaty. Uh, But let's take a look at this from the fall. I think in the fall, you're going back to school, so that might be too big of a distraction. Like, you don't want people enrolling for class and then not showing up because they were purged. Mm -hmm. You've also got nicer weather, but then you're going to be impacting all the seasons that are going on. You've got uh, baseball, football, uh, hockey starts kicking up. I, I don't know when the MLS plays. I'm guessing it's in the fall. Uh, the leaves are changing colors, so that might be like a pretty scenery-type situation. Uh, but the shorter days, and then we're, we're starting now, we get into winter. You definitely can't do it in the winter. I mean, can we all agree on that? Oh, yeah. Winter is de- not a, uh, a uh, favorable climate for purging. No. Between the snow, the rain... And the the holiday seasons, no one wants to purge around the holiday seasons. And again, you go into the same problem. You've gone shopping for all these individuals. I guess what would be an interesting way to frame a winter purge would be if you were to purge in the winter and you saw like your parents didn't get you a gift, it kind of should give you a heads up as to maybe they're purging me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh Uh-oh. And then spring's all about new beginnings, so I don't know if we could... A spring purge right after the holiday seems mm-hmm. a, little a little cruel. But, I mean, that's the whole point. So, but I think we're both resting here on, on like, a July, if, if, if mm-hmm. what I'm catching, that's what you're putting down. down. Yeah. Well, speaking of mortality. Yes. You want to talk about something? Yeah, sure. So uh, I recently, this past week, started a new rotation. I am doing palliative care. Uh, I'm on the palliative care service in the hospital. So I just wanted to, to kind of touch base and talk a little bit about my experiences so far this week and how uh, I've been enjoying the palliative, like palliative care a lot more than I thought I was going to. Um, pretty much uh, for those that don't, well, actually, probably most people won't know what it is, but palliative care is essentially trying to reduce the symptom burden of those with uh, people with cancer or other terminal diseases um, to help them restore function of uh, quality of life 
and functionality uh, and retain to like whatever um, you know status, functional status, or try to hold on to whatever functional status they've left uh, with their terminal diseases. So I have been working a lot with the palliative doctors here. So they do a lot of pain management. That's a very common kind of um, use of palliative services. Do like pain management for people with like st- like very advanced cancers. You know, like feeding access, like nausea, fatigue, depression, kind of those kind of thing challenges that people face at the end of life based on the terminal illnesses. So it's been a great, like, amazing experience so far. Um, I get to sit down with people that have, you know, weeks and months left to live and have these really, like, frank conversations with them about, you know, what they want in their life or whatever life they have left and discussing, like, you know, um, next steps and uh, hospice care or, like, home hospice or even just, like, uh, getting, like, living wills and advanced directives and power of attorney set up. And just really talking and having like frank discussions on what these people, you know, want done to them uh, when they are nearing their, you know, their end of the life. <coughs> and um, it's been like, really mixed. Like some people, you know, are fully um, aware of the situation and are comfortable with their mortality, and are very comfortable like saying that you know I am dying and. You know, I want to maximize the time I have left by spending it outside the hospital, like, you know, with my friends and family um, and trying to retain like whatever and maximize whatever time I have left. But other people, you know, are kind of living in like denial or in that bubble and think that they're going to get better or there are other options to like to live, even though they have a terminal disease process. Um, So it's really interesting kind of the dynamics that um i've experienced in the hospital talking with people and kind of their 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 uh perceptions of their mortality have you noticed that there's a certain type of people that are more okay with with the concept of death or is it kind of just a toss-up you have some people that are just no yeah this is fine or you know you can't really ever figure out who's going to be cool with it i think uh the, the the themes that I've noticed is that the people who are generally speaking like older are more comfortable with the mortality because you know they've lived you know longer life they've experienced death and dying already whether it's their like significant others like the ones that that I have noticed are like way more comfortable with their mortality are the ones that have like already lost like their you know husband or wife to a disease process or know people who have like gone through similar things it's always like the the younger people, like the 50s and 60s, younger people um, with like families that are usually unable to or just don't want to discuss, you know, the possibility of them dying shortly. And that um, it's also kind of a, a shame, too, because like I'm not one to like, you know, shoot down hope or like to, to like say like, oh, there's no hope. But it's really like reframing hope into saying like, you know, you might not have like a lot of time left. So like you you probably shouldn't hope for like, you know, living a normal like life or like another decade or something or 20 years. Like that's probably not going to happen. But you can, you know, have hope and like still retain hope that you, you can like maximize the time that you have left by um, like spending time with your friends and family and seeing people and then like doing things that 
you know, you never, that you wanted to do, you know, so you, you can still have hope that you can still maximize time, whatever time you have left, but you're not going to be able to, you know, sustain hope that you're going to live for like another 10, 20 years with a stage four cancer. Wow. And, and is there like a, have you been surprised by the age of some individuals uh, in this program? Like, wow, that is a, that puts a kind of a check on life and where you should be starting to maximize it earlier than later. Uh, it's really hard to talk, like, it's really hard, like, um, to really discuss, to answer that question, because, um, you know, their cancers are very variable in terms of presentation, like, usually, you know, if you're, like, a healthy individual, like, you you, should deal, you typically don't get cancer until, like, you're, like, 70 or 80 or towards the end of your life anyways, um, but there are definitely, with, like, the way that, uh, you know, Americans are eating and Americans' health is the way that that's going, you know, you're starting to see younger and younger people having more and more advanced cancers. Yeah, it's scary. Ha- uh, has that changed this last week about how you view your own mortality or what you do about it? No, I've been confident on mortality for years now. Like, I think I had a I, I, this is actually a good question. Like, uh, I think my second year of med school, we had like a discussion in my, one of my small groups about like mortality. And I was like, you know what? I'm very comfortable on mortality. Like I'm for sure going to die one day and I'm okay with dying. Like I'm, there's plenty of things I still want to do. Like I still want to like have kids and like have a family and all this other stuff. But you know, if I was to like, God, like heaven forbid, if I was like to walk out on the street tomorrow and get hit by a fucking car and die, like, I think I would not feel like I wasted my life or, you know, have any regrets on the life that I've lived thus far. And a lot of my classmates were like, what is wrong with you? Like, are you, like, suicidal? I was like, no, 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 I'm just comfortable with the fact that, you know, I might die at any moment and that I've lived a very fulfilling life so far and I've, you know, achieved a lot with my life and I'm comfortable saying that, you know, I've lived a good life and that it's okay to die. And I think a lot of people are, you know, mentally aren't quite there or don't really appreciate that fact that you know anyone can die you know you never know like when that your next day your your last day is going to be and you should be always remember and like con- like i think that you should always have in the back of mind that like you are mortal and you will die at some point and that you should live a life that is memorable and you should do things that you want to do and you shouldn't be living maximizing your current life because you never know when your last day is going to be Yes, and we're not advocating doing anything you want to be happy, so we're not advocating purging. But in general, there should be a sense of happiness and appeal to your daily yeah. interactions and transactions. Yeah. And then if you know, if you're not like really happy with how your life is, like what's, you know, stopping you from doing things that make you happy or doing things that, you know, you want, that you want to do or living the life that you want to live. And I get that like people have responsibilities and stuff, but you know, I think that's probably the worst thing that you can experience in your life is to, when you get to your deathbed to think about and reflect on your life and think about that you wasted your life doing something that you didn't want to do or, you know, you missed opportunities in your life. I think that's probably the probably I, I can only imagine. I think that would probably be one of the worst realizations or feelings that you could have is that, you know, on your deathbed thinking that I wasted my life and didn't do anything positive or, you know, didn't contribute or anything. That's interesting. I was talking to one of my classmates. She immigrated from Pakistan uh, 
just after 2010, 2011. And mm-hmm. she was saying one of the things that she really loves about America is the fact that like you can be anyone that you want to be in this country. And you can never truly just straight fail because there's always opportunity to change your, your life and do something different mm-hmm. and focus on yourself and what makes you happy and then you know find employment in that kind of field. I think that also goes back to what you were just saying is like find out what you want to do and do it and don't get to that point in life where you might get faced with some news that it's going to end um, and you not have the time to to do all those things that you probably could have done or should have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um not saying that it's like, you know, easy to like change career fields and do like what like is ultimately fulfilling, but and you know, there's always discussion about like as a kid, like you know, like at 18 years old when you go to college, like you, there's no way you can know for what you want to do for the rest of your life, but you know, it's not like final, like making decisions when you're younger, it doesn't mean that you have to stick with these decisions for the rest of your life like there's no nothing that really says that you know you have to stick with like i don't know like accounting for the rest of your life if you choose that in college to do accounting yeah i well we can talk to you know stuff that you study in school i think you would probably find a correlation between individuals that get degrees that aren't applicable to a thriving economy i.e like some of your Mm -hmm. softer you know like sociology yeah something like softer you you get a degree like that i mean i think you're you're going to feel very unfulfilled when afterwards you know finding a job is difficult and so i i think generationally because so many people went from like a you know hard sciences kind of bachelor of sciences approach and we've like really expanded the social sciences theme throughout universities as it's become more liberalized and I don't mean liberalized uh, from a political standpoint Um, I think people are still finding it hard to figure out how those uh, majors fit into society and so because of that individuals are having a really tough time when they transition being able to have those conversations with you know death is certain everyone's got to face it but I think if you have some earlier success, it's probably something you're more fine with because, you know, you can feel like you've you've checked the the block, you've done something at least that you can, you know, if you had to put your entire OER, ORB, ERB on your tombstone, it'd be like, okay, yeah, I did it. I'm fine. I'm good. Good to go. You know, like from a military mm-hmm. standpoint. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, like you can still, I feel like you can still go into these like softer fields or softer degrees and areas of study. You just have to like recognize the fact that it will be a lot harder to have like a meaningful contribution to society, like if you choose to go in these routes. But not to say like that's impossible. Like you can still have success as like a have a degree in sociology or a degree in like women's studies. Like you can still probably have like you know a moderately successful life if that's what you want to do. But you have to understand that like to be good at anything, you have to sacrifice and really commit yourself to something to be good at something. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's, you know, law or medicine or sociology or women's studies, you still, to be the best, you have to commit yourself to be the best. And you can't just be like, oh, you know, I chose this degree. I'm, 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 that means that just because I have a degree in, in like sociology means I'm going to be like the best sociologist or whatever, you know? So we've morphed the conversation now. Now we brought up degrees and death. Do you think there is a correlation between income level? 
and the idea of being fine with looking death in the face. Do you think that this is this is a, a financially uh, uh, divergent, you know, uh, theory, or or do you think they're one and the same? Uh, I would I hesitate I hesitate to make like broad generalizations because I don't necessarily think that your you know your financial state really plays into kind of your mortality. I mean, I can kind of. S- I'd imagine, like you know, people that are not as wealthy or kind of poor, like dying is probably pre- dying is going to be expensive if you're not able to, you know, if you can't afford die- to die. But there is like Medicare, Medicaid that does cover hospice and some of the that stuff. And that's a diff- kind of different discussion regarding kind of you know healthcare costs in America. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I know like plenty of like I can imagine there's also plenty of like wealthy people that don't want to die because they want to spend their money. But there's also like You'd also argue that, you know, poor people have uh, or, you know, aren't like uh, are more OK with dying because they're not living like a very fulfilling life or whatever. But I don't know, man. There's so many like discussions or like so many factors that play into that um, being comfortable with immortality. Yeah. I mean, you got to look back on. Like, how did you spend money? Is money like actually a source of, of happiness um, mm-hmm. I like Tosh Poino's thing that he said. I think this was like back when he was popular, but uh, you know he's never seen it. You, he's never seen like an unhappy person because can you imagine uh, an unhappy rich person? Because if you're rich, you can own a jet ski, and who would be sad on a jet ski? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I feel like uh, the saying that money can't buy happiness isn't really a very accurate statement because there are plenty of things they can do with money to make you happy. I think money can provide fulfillment might be a better way of saying that statement, but money can for sure buy happiness, but it cannot buy fulfillment. I'll put it that way. I think that's a better can't buy fulfillment. I hate the stuff like money can't buy happiness. Those are like those yeah. Instagram bro like quotes like, yeah, dude. better answer the door because opportunity's knocking or don't just knock on the door of opportunity, kick it down. Yeah. Like you are fucking in like denial if you think that having more money won't make you happier like there was this i mean i think there's like the study that shows that like past like 70 or eighty thousand dollars a year there's like diminishing returns on happiness but there's like a requisite level of like of income that makes you happier because you know if you're literally living paycheck to paycheck you're probably not gonna be very happy with your life if you're like living paycheck to paycheck and like surviving off like you know like food stamps i'm sure you're not you know living very happy life yeah i just binged it because i use bing i don't use google and the first thing that came up was science says that money does buy happiness uh, and that that income level that threshold is roughly seventy five thousand dollars in annual salary mm-hmm. so that- yeah and there's like diminishing returns past that but like uh, there's definitely something where you're comfortable and happy in the fact that you are comfortable or living comfortably. God, there are so many articles on this. Everyone has an opinion. We should write our own. We're just doing this. This is a vocal article. Mm-hmm. Money. Yeah, you can definitely, money definitely does contribute to happiness, at least to a certain level. I saw some influencers post and it, it said something to the effect of like, if you had a hundred million dollars today, you know, what would be the first, like, five things you would spend it on? 
Uh, so oh. I, I will pose Ooh. that question to this. you. You're on the spot now. I have had time to think about it generally, but you haven't, so okay. you have to go now. So if I had $100 million, to, so pretty much if I had unlimited amount of money, what would I spend my money on? Yes. The first top five things. Number one, the first thing I would do would be to like max out and set out like a retirement fund uh, financially so that I wouldn't have to work again. So I would create like a financial fund that I can live, survive off the, in- the, the, um, survive off the interest for the rest of my life and set up my kids for future my that's like a hundred million dollars that's a lot of, that's like generational wealth that like you can set up like future generations for wealth so that's like a lot of money so i would make sure that first thing i'll do is like set up like a financial fund that allows my family to survive off this wealth and create generational wealth second thing i would buy would be like a nice house where uh right now in washington well, actually, the second thing I would do would be buy out my army contract and go into civilian residency and not go back into the army. That's the second thing I would do. Third thing I would do would be to like buy a house wherever I do like residency at because I would still I, I would still go into medicine because I love medicine um, and would definitely still pursue that field. Uh, so that would like be the third thing would like buy a house where uh, I could find you know residency to to train at. Fourth thing I would buy would probably be like um, a sick garage, like sick gym set up wherever I buy a house. Oh, like Brian Shaw. And the f- yeah, like a sick like detached barn gym, like Rich Froning barn gym type style. You know, make a home for Cronus. And then the fifth thing I would buy. I mean, I already have a truck. I don't need a new vehicle. I don't really need any like toys. Um. Maybe like uh, you could donate to the Trump fund and become the next EU ambassador now that Gordon Sondland's been fired. Yeah, maybe like donate some money. I don't know what the fifth thing I do. Maybe like donate money or yeah, but that'd be like top five. Top five would be one retirement account, set up generational wealth. Number two would be to buy out my army contract, not go back into the army. Number three would be to buy a nice house wherever I would do residency. Number four would be to outfit that house with a sick gym. I guess number five maybe would be like to buy like a vacation home somewhere. Okay. Maybe like a Mexican, buy some land in like Mexico or something and, and, and have like a vacation spot somewhere. Maybe I guess the fifth number thing. Number, number five. All right. That checks out. I like, so we've got a lot of it looks like more retirement planning. And just or just like yeah, the future. Okay, I like that. I I think I I share that uh, that idea with investing that money. Uh, I would first invest in the American Gold Eagle coins uh, as well as the American Buffalo coins because gold uh, is mm-hmm. always worth its. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I would definitely invest in property. I uh-huh. would not want to invest in property in a city. So like you, like I'd want to probably have a place like where I could ski pretty regularly, like up in uh, yeah. Canada, uh, maybe in like Whistler or something, yeah. uh, Vancouver area. Vancouver, yeah. Uh, have like a sweet uh, gym as well, like a separated barn style gym. Uh, where we could, you know, influence some poutine-eating Canucks to get into Cronus Fit, you know, really grow the brand internationally. Uh, 
Um, I would also look at doing like more charity stuff too with the money, mm-hmm. like being able to increase like scholarship funds. But I think I'd like go and look at uh, like two things. One, like orphanages, um, like helping those out. I mean, one thing that always, and this is a, a tangent, is there's like a lot of Americans out there that like, you know, don't have homes and are looking to be adopted. Like one of the things I want to do with my life is mm-hmm. like I do want to adopt eventually. Oh, my God. Um, Dude, I have the same idea. I would love to adopt a kid. Yeah, I mean, because there's like if if you can find the resources to do it, then you should. Yeah. It, it blows my mind when people are like going internationally, like doing this international yeah. shopping almost for you know, someone to adopt when there are thousands of kids in this country that you could just go yeah. in your same state. So like that I feel like that's always like annoying because like you're spending how many thousands of dollars to go abroad to do this when you could, there's someone in mm. your country that, you know, needs your help. That That's one. Yeah. In your neighborhood, essentially your neighborhood that needs help. I would try to do something for dogs. Uh, I love dogs. I love pit bulls, Staffordshire Terriers. I don't like the like dog fighting that's kind of like ruined their reputation. Um, that's one thing also tangential now, uh, Michael Vick, like I know he was a Philadelphia Eagle, uh, but like the dude was sick, like what he did to dogs and the fact that like, we're talking about giving him a free pass and there's getting all of this media attention. I mean, he used to like remove the lips of dogs. So their teeth were constantly exposed to make them look more ferocious and he would drown them and electrocute them and just hang them up, pull them up by their neck and slam them to the ground and like bash their heads in. Like, that kind of sick behavior with dogs. Like, I want legislation to come through where it's like, you're going to face strict criminal, like, penalties. And I'm talking, like, going to jail for that kind of sick behavior. Like, Michael Vick should not be celebrated by the NFL, like, at all. I don't care if he's just a freak athlete. That He's not a good person. Um, yeah. Didn't they... I- I thought they passed a law recently that you know that makes it a felony to abuse animals. Yeah, they've criminalized it, but I like I I want it to be like extreme. Like if you kill a dog purposely, like that's like a twenty five year sentence. Yeah, I feel like they, yeah. So I, I think that's in the works already. I think that's kind of the the American gestalt is there already to make that a thing. Uh, with the rest of my money, I'd probably, I think I'd run for office. Be a Michael Bloomberg. Yeah, just just not spending quite the amount that he has, but I probably yeah. maybe something at like the state level. I mean, the the weird thing is only like about forty percent of the Americans that can vote in elections vote, and then when you look at like midterms, that number goes down substantially. So like twenty one percent essentially of a voting population determines the majority of what Congress does. And a lot of people are always like voting for president because it's like the popular thing to do, but no one votes for the House of Representatives or the Senate elections, which are always offset Mm -hmm. from the presidential years. Um, For, you know, especially some govern, I think like 30 some states have governor races that are two years after. But so like a very small minority of the population votes um, and that determines the majority. So I, I think I'd want to do something along those lines to increase voter turnout and run on that kind of a platform. Sure. Yeah. Uh, number five. Yeah, I think I'd continue working just like uh, you would and then try to do something like maybe more non-profity. 
uh, being like financially yeah. secure, but but living close enough where it's not too far of a of a commute. Maybe I'll buy a train. You know, I'll just buy my own train. my own train car. Like, oh, I'm I'm going uh, to work today, guys. Yeah, uh, car number five. That's mine. <laughs> yeah, I would. I for sure still like practice medicine. Uh, I'll probably do it a little bit differently if I didn't have to. You know pay for stuff and have that that like the financial freedom to do whatever i wanted i'd for sure still practice medicine but probably in like a different capacity yeah i I, one of the things that's weird here up in school is now that everyone's getting ready to go to summer summer internships and that process has begun to start with the applications it's kind of clear fordham's got a really great public interest uh, resource center and a lot of people that graduate from fordham will go corporate law but it's also really known for its public interest work and nonprofit work. But you'll have people show up and because they know that and they don't want to look like almost selfish, it's almost got this like flair of if you want to go corporate, you're selfish. I mean, at least from a student perspective. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting now where people are like very motivated uh, by money. A lot of them like, oh, I'm applying to this internship this summer because it pays because most of your 1L summer internships don't pay, like 95% of them. Um, and so if you get paid over it, like, you know, you got to be really, really smart, but you've also got to go and look for those jobs. So like the first internship that people have, usually you get to do something impactful. You, you get to mm-hmm. go work with nonprofits. You get to do the stuff to see what the law does beyond just like kind of like that white collar crime, like borderline, bright line that you're riding, um, or just the, the typical like, litigant that's that's a public defender but it's really interesting to hear people like you know really being motivated by money and i wonder if like everyone just had like a blank check to start over how many of those people would really be interested um to go and do those jobs after that if if they didn't have to worry about money yeah that's a good point like i wonder too as well that like if you remove the financial aspect out of like professionals like uh like medicine or law like how many people would still go into that profession you know if they if it wasn't like so lucrative in some regards yeah i mean a lot of people get treated pretty poorly i've got a couple buddies that are in it and they're talking about how the associates at their firm literally yell at them like full-grown men and women in their 40s Mm -hmm. 50s and 60s top of their lungs screaming and belittling and you're just sitting there like how I don't know how I would take that. Like it was one thing in the military when you get yelled at because you're like, okay, like it's kind of the culture. But at, at some point too in the military, that that stopped, and there be there's like this right. this maturity that that kicks in. I feel like that's like a a, a very like <laughs> kind of army schools type approach to to managing people. But I was shocked to hear that in the in the corporate law realm, people were having these temper tantrums and oh, behaving yeah. like those. Like, I, I, I don't, I really, I, I, at this point, I don't know how I would respond to that. I don't think I'd respond very well. Yeah. I, I will say in medicine, um, that used to be the norm as well. Like probably like the seventies and eighties, it was very much so that, you know, especially in surgery, like the surgeon culture probably back then was very, like much more malignant and toxic. But I think like nowadays, like in, the, in my hospital, like the program is very non-malignant. Like all the surgeons, like all the attending surgeons, 
you know, are very understanding. They don't, like, yell for the most part. They don't belittle people. Like, you still have a couple, like, outliers that still believe in, like, that toxic mistreatment of, like, junior physicians. But as a, as a whole, I think medicine's done a pretty good job of, you know, reducing that toxic culture. But there's still cultures out there that exist or, like, hospitals out there and programs out there that exist that still have that kind of uh, mentality. But I think it's becoming uh, more or less so nowadays. I think it's maybe a sign that people are, like, I think the mental health aspect creeps into it because they're realizing individuals that are treated poorly, you know, you respond one or two ways, uh, mm-hmm. you know, negatively or positively to it. Or I guess there's a third way you're just indifferent. But if yeah. there's that negative response, then all of a sudden you might be triggering someone to, you know, to the to the darker side of their thoughts and, you know, it, it yeah. might increase some some other you know maybe self uh, violent tendencies and so maybe that's the reason why yeah, people for, are getting away sure. from it. Yeah, for sure. I think that definitely plays a large part into it. I think um, I was actually like reading a book about it. Like in the early two thousands, like they didn't create the ADR work week for re- for residents or for doctors in training until like two thousand three. Like before that, like I heard stories of like residents, like my, like the doctors that I learned from in school, you know, they're like 15 and 60, like they're older, like the previous generation. I was, I heard stories about like how surgeons like wouldn't like leave the hospital for months on end because they couldn't leave the hospital, you know, were stuck in the hospital. They were st- they worked like a hundred hour, hundred plus hour weeks which is like didn't go home, would go home to sleep and then come back uh, like to do these like very kind of like demeaning tasks in the hospital. So I'm very, I'm very glad that kind of the, the culture has shifted, but I also kind of wonder like, you know, if it's quote unquote softer, if that's producing less, you know, resilient and not as good physicians. So that's another discussion or thing that I don't really, don't really know. I think I've asked like some of the the surgeons like if they think it's better that you know the culture has changed, um, but they still say that like some of my mentors have they've always say that you know it was extremely tough when they were training, but they they made them to be very good physicians, and very good doctors and surgeons because they were you know under so much pressure to perform, and it's like it's either you you rise to the like circumstances or you kind of fall. And like, if you can survive it, then, you know, you're going to be a very well-trained and well, like well, high-performing surgeon. But nowadays, you know, with kind of how it's legislated and how there are different requirements now for training, like you can't only be in the hospital for X amount of hours. You can only, you know, you can't work that much. Like, I feel like there's, um, like a lower bar in terms of, um, you know, you aren't going to be challenging people as much. So there's going to be like more the people are going to make it through the training that aren't that might not have made made it through training before. But I don't know. That's like a biggest bigger discussion to have about like, uh, you know, the goal of training doctors. Yeah. I mean, we talked about uh, Angela Duckworth's grit. Mm-hmm. I think back in the summer when we were doing that camp with Northeastern, but we had that same conversation a week and a half ago at a house meeting at my school where we had to talk about grit and perseverance. And there was a huge generational divide. And I joined the conversation. And afterwards, somebody called me a boomer. Um, 
because Fucking the hypotheticals that they gave us were indicative of, of experiences of brand new law graduates going to a firm and writing a brief for somebody and the attorney hating it so much and just like essentially ripping it up in front of you and not acknowledging the effort that you put into it. Mm -hmm. uh, just looking at the bottom line and I remember sitting there and people were like, you know, yeah, I think the way that you can approach this is maybe you go and have a conversation with that attorney and, and just let them know that, you know, you understand their frustration with it, but you did try your best and you maybe want some feedback as to in the future how to deal with this kind of negative feedback rather than, you know, just straight ripping apart and not acknowledging that effort. Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting there like, what the fuck? Like, how is that? If she turned in a product that was unsatisfactory, like, there's a standard then. Okay, you didn't meet the standard. But the fact that right. you didn't like the messaging that, that came along and the fact that, like, all of a sudden your effort was more important than the substance, why are we having this conversation? Like, this shouldn't... There, there, I don't see any issue with this here. I mean, like, my first mm -hmm. thing I ever did in regiment as... Uh, like a battle captain is, is I was compiling reports and I had the wrong heading for a platoon and I sent it to the platoon for review based on their operation and I'm like within three minutes of sending that email and not catching that I, I did not list the platoon name correctly on the heading for the paper I got a call from the company commander and it was the most professional concise and quiet counseling that I've ever received that essentially said, you are fucked up. And the commander essentially said, if you can't catch these small things, and this is the level of effort you put into your attention to detail, I can assure you, you won't have a place here. Mm -hmm. And it, it terrified me. Like, I was like, oh, wow. I, okay, like, I should have just, I, I did not put, like, first platoon down there. I should have, and like from that day on, like I double checked every single, you know, thing I ever submitted to oh, that yeah. company. But it like yeah. at no point did I sit there and go, man, I really tried hard. Like, why didn't he recognize that? It was like, oh, well, I'm fucked up. Like, I yeah. I need to fix myself. I don't think there's yeah. a lot of that that goes around uh, these days when it when it actually comes to you know accepting failure and just you know don't make the same mistake again. Yeah, I mean like. They're definitely like mo like modes of delivery, you know, in terms of like leadership and like delivering like ment like delivering um like mentorship or delivering like uh development. But uh yeah, I totally agree. Like everyone has like a come to Jesus moment when it comes to like life and I just worry that in today's society where people are more like worried about how people feel or, you know, or uh, respond to like pot like criticism that you know we're missing the boat a lot of the time on like development and and being able to to you know learn from mistakes yeah i i don't think if if people haven't either been faced with a lot of you know difficulty or failure in their life too though the later that they experience that i think the more shocking it's going to be oh yeah I had a that's that's a great point you bring up. Um, I had a pretty good discussion on one of my rotations down uh, in San Antonio, 
where I were, like interview with the program director down there for the surgery program, and he said that you know when he interviews people, he doesn't really give a shit about like your your successes or like how good you did in school. He likes to he to, to, like this specifically said he likes to look at people's like transcripts and see that they got like a D or failed something, because that shows that you know they have experienced failure and are able to overcome experiencing failure and still succeed and do well. And like he he like doesn't like to hire or like you know hire people that have never failed before because you know if you never experience failure like how you don't know how to you know overcome the failure and learn from failure instead you you know a lot of people that fail that you know like highly successful people like I'm sure you see it in law school I see it in med school all the time like these people that are coming to to medicine or law school like have never you know failed anything or done anything poorly before. And then when they're confronted with the fact that they're not as good as they think they are, they kind of crumble to that that realization, and then they almost become like kind of useless. You know, they aren't able to to rise above failure. Oh, that's the worst here. In people, the fir- you know first grades just came out, and so there are about three hundred and sixty first year law students, and they have a curve, and. Mm-hmm. It's not like a hard science, two plus two is four. If everyone gets four, everyone's going to get the A. It's like, well, some people got better fours than others. So, yeah, we got to really spread your grades out from the C's all the way up to the A's. And so people that yeah. you know have gotten into the school have gotten nothing essentially but A's. You know, and that's where we talk to about some of the, the softer classes and majors that people get knowing they want to go to law school. So they have to, you know, like take maybe just more writing or reading intensive classes that don't really have any, you know, mathematical background. It's just, oh, I just got to do this. And all they get are A's in that class. And then Mm -hmm. grades came out and people were like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm having like second thoughts whether I should even be at this school. And you're like, yeah, it's one semester. This is four months of your life. Like you should not be this concerned with grades. Like it will work itself out. You're, you graduate Mm -hmm. from here and three years as the dumbest kid at this law school congratulations you just passed law school go do something with your degree stop like putting all of your your validation into a single letter that you know that summarizes a semester and we're back from a break sorry guys i had a little technical difficulties um but we're back uh back to the discussion that we were just having um but yeah I think that uh, when it comes to life, you know, we shouldn't necessarily be um, just trying to get by or just, you know, just meet the bare bare minimums. We should definitely be um, looking to excel at every potential, excel at every potential uh, aspect or every case that you can, because um, you know it's doing a disservice to you if you're not trying to your best or. And it's particularly doing a disservice to others because you're not going to be the best version of yourself that you can be. Yeah, I I liked what we were talking about that, you know, if, what is it, iron sharpens iron? Yeah, the iron sharpens iron. Yeah, you have to be, you have to be tough. Uh, Tough times don't last, tough people do. Uh, Yeah. But I think that's a good, like, great analogy for kind of training, too, and, like, uh, surrounding yourself with high-functioning individuals that push you and motivate you to do better because, you know, I'll be honest, like, a lot of my peers in medicine don't necessarily motivate. Like, I don't feel, like, um, like extrinsic motivation from others to do well. 
I think I have more of like an intrinsic motivation to be the best version of myself I can be because, you know, I understand that in the very near future, I will be responsible for, you know, people's lives and that, you know, to give anything less to, to not try my hardest and to work, you know, at like a sub potential, like to blow my potential is doing not only like myself a disservice by not, you know, pushing myself to be the best version I can become, but doing like patience a disservice because, you know, you don't want a doctor that doesn't know what he's doing or isn't like fully prepared to be, you know, the best doctor that he can be. Absolutely. I, you know, it's a lot of it is mental. Like, like for, for instance, whenever I've hit, whenever I've come within like 10% of a squat PR and it's only for, for like squats. If I go into that day of training and I'm like, uh, I'm kind of afraid of this weight, like 10 out of 10 times, I don't hit that weight. I don't even like, even like 10% off of that weight, I struggle with it. But if I go in like knowing like, oh yeah, I'm going to crush this. I've worked my ass off. I'm going to do this weight. I've hit it, yeah. you know, like more than 50% of the time. But it's one of those, like you have to have the the mental maturity to, to recognize uh, that fact. Mm-hmm. It's like being able to believe in yourself and knowing that, you know, you put the work in already and having confidence in, the, in your own abilities because you put the work in already. Like when it comes to med school, like there was never a point in my med school career where I was like, man, I really hope I didn't fail. Oh, there's okay. I said there's one test where I thought I, I was on the verge of failing that I like, but I kind of knew that I was like on the verge of failing that test because I hadn't put the work in. But like at no point in my med school career where I was like, man, I might've failed that test because I know, because I like, I know I put the, the time in on the front end and studying the material and learning material that I know that I was prepared for the test, you know? Yes. And I think that, you know, if you ever have doubts in your mind about whether or not you passed something or didn't pass something, like, you probably should have put more work into it. <laughs> no, sorry to be like, you know. No, 100%. Sorry to be, like, blunt about it. But, like, if you have any doubts in your abilities, then you should have worked harder. That's simple as it is. You should have worked harder. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, being completely honest with yourself is is first and foremost. Yeah. Uh, and then, obviously, being honest with others like, you know, I like the thing though that Patrick Swayze says, and I think you can apply it to almost everything, but in Roadhouse, his rule is just to be nice. If someone calls you a cocksucker, just be nice. I think that's a good way to treat yourself. It's a good way to treat others. You know, just... Oh, yeah. You know, that stuff goes a long way. And then, it, again, even in, in the schoolhouse setting, like, you treat others nicely and, you know, they're going to want to help you. So don't be an asshole. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like uh, reputations go far, and that um, you know, once you have a reputation, like it's very hard to change reputations. And word travels fast regarding who you are and what you do, and like if you think that you can hide something in your past, like you're probably not going to be able to hide it. Well, speaking of not hiding it, what do we have to look forward to this week with functional fitness with Bobby? So functional fitness is more of the same. We're on week 13 of our week 13 of 15 of our hypertrophy block. So we'll be continuing some more of the same for functional fitness. And then um, in three weeks, uh, we'll be shifting gears and moving into our next mesocycle. cycle. Uh, week 16, we're going to move into a tempo and positional cycle, uh, mesocycle cycle, just to try to tune up some movement patterns to then get stronger. Nice, nice. Yeah. 
so we got some stuff going on in functional fitness um i'm pretty excited with this program that i've been doing uh this cycle this off-season cycle because i think it's something that i haven't programmed in a while and then this is like a full like 40 week off season programming. So like, you know, I think this will be like a very comprehensive like year round approach to fitness that we can definitely try and, uh, you know, consolidate into a year long running program based on this. That's awesome, man. I like that idea. Very long and the long game. Exactly. And then people ask us all the time, like, you know, where uh we're going with some of the programming and like next next goals and, and cycles and stuff so i'm excited to see where you know this stuff goes now people should stay tuned um what's going on with military prep i think there's some news that you're breaking yes the ranger v5 program uh is <laughs> coming out this week it'll be more circuit based uh less less rest so instead of doing some longer drawn out metcons uh we're going to reduce your rest periods during the actual strength portions of it uh most of the strength elements will be conducted in circuits and then the running uh will will try to make it less boring but still with the goal of, of passing an rpft um or like you know running a good 10k time but it, it'll be broken up more with intervals and some uh, supplemental kettlebell and, and dumbbell type exercises uh, for those runs. Uh, still looking at doing some longer cardio sessions uh, at the end of the week. So Saturdays, just look forward to you know anywhere from an hour to two hours worth of some good taxing cardio. Um, and you know we'll still have ruck programming uh, built in there. Rucking is going to have more interval work this cycle, so people can get some quicker times. It's been one of the things that people have asked consistently is how to get faster times, rather than just you know for sustainability and just rucking and passing a 12 miler. But you know guys that want to get down to that two hour to 214 time, um, you know, and be super competitive. Uh, in their units when it comes to training up. So we're going to, with that in mind, we're going to increase the, the speed work on those 12 mile rucks uh, instead of just, again, you know, meeting the standard at, you know, 245 to three hours with a nice paced gait. Mm-hmm. All right. Good stuff going on. Um, what other stuff is going on? Anything else you need to push or want to get out there? Uh, no, as people start you know, looking to apply to schools and, and you're coming up and getting that information back that you've been accepted through the spring as we get closer to uh, Easter, which is when I know a lot of schools notify people. Uh, look up the, the Kernis Fit Scholarship uh, Fund. Uh, start putting your packets together now. We're going to have more scholarships this year than we did uh, last year because of the, the awesome support that, that Kernis Fit has gotten from the loyal listeners and, and athletes that follow the programming um, so we're looking forward to getting as many people you know helped in, in transitioning out of the military and going to higher education and getting them in contact with the right people so just keep that in mind if you know someone that's going through it um, check out the website at kernisfit.org uh, under the scholarship banner uh, and all the information that you need is there cool yeah i think uh we're we have some more money this year so we're going to try and leverage that money into some more um scholarship opportunities for people yeah it's gonna be good you need to sign up for it uh what else we got 
Um, I think that's mostly it. Besides, like you know, typically are living leaving you know reviews uh, on whatever podcast uh, device you listen to, and then letting your friend buddies know about us and really spreading the coronavirus. Where we appreciate everything that you guys do for us. Yeah, we've got almost twenty thousand plays on the podcast uh, that we started back in the summer. So. Uh, super excited to see that, you know, it's, it's taken off and, you know, let us know what you want to hear. You know, we did a leadership conversation. We've done one on grit. We've done one on, you know, the basic kind of programming elements that we throw in there. We've got, uh, brain body, Bobby, we've got the weekly dispatch that, that comes out. So let us know what you want to hear and, uh, you know, what you want talked about and we'll make sure we cover it for you. Absolutely. And I am planning on doing an episode today, later today, uh, talking about placebo and uh, the placebo effect. Kind of interesting that I was uh, uh, reading about this article, but the placebo effect is real and it is very much so like applicable in everyday life. All right. Well, just don't pull that shit on me if we go work out. I want to. I don't want to be tricked into to beating you. <laughs> the placebo effect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't All tell right. me what I'm pulling is 500 pounds when it's actually 135. Mm-hmm. I got you. All right. I think that'll wrap it for us this week. Um, hit us up online, www.cronusfit.org, uh, at cronusfit on Instagram. Uh, and you can email us, hq at cronusfit.org as well. We appreciate you guys letting, uh, giving us some feedback and reaching out and letting us know that, you know, you, you stumbled off our page and you love our programming. It's good. Uh, we like... Uh, getting that feedback yeah have a good week everybody all right until next time guys bye